Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. This is part one of two on worship. We had so many really great questions and stories from our audience that we wanted to take the time to explore this topic in more depth. So we've got part one coming up this week. In two weeks, we'll release part two. And then we've got some other great episodes and series planned for you after that. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this episode on worship. One of the most powerful worship experiences I've had was playing at a Catholic youth conference during the time of adoration, which is a time to reflect and meditate on God's presence. And I'm not even Catholic, but I remember feeling something more profound than just playing soft background music. I remember feeling a kind of transcendence, but it was liberating and slightly terrifying as I also contemplated my existence uh, of my insignificance and significance in both the universe and the story of God. Mike, when I met you, I'm not sure if you remember this question. This is the first question that I, uh, I was able to see the glory that is science, Mike, in full, full action with. Uh, this was like our introductory. I walked in, our friend Rob said, hey, Michael, this is, we call this guy Science Mike. Mike, what, what's happening when Michael is in a room full of thousands of people and they're all going crazy over this mythological construct and uh, putting themselves into a frenzy? What's, what's going on <laughs> in their brains? And I so clearly remember him saying mythological construct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, first of all, I was, uh, I'd had a couple, which always makes my answers better. Uh, which for you, a couple is like a normal person's like 12 pack. Right. I, right. Exactly. Like by a couple, I'm like staggering and, uh, and waving. Um, yeah, but worship is crazy, uh, neurologically speaking. And it's especially crazy when it involves music. You know, when we like asked people on this episode, you know, what are your questions about worship? I thought it was really interesting that, what do you think, Michael? 85, 90% were about music. Um, but that's for good reason, because when we attach music to worship, it's more neurologically powerful. It's more potent. So when you're uh, listening to music, a lot of your brain is active, uh, especially in the obvious air areas around processing of sound. But then also you get a lot of activity in your left temporal lobe, which is where uh, language happens. You also have corresponding activity in the right temporal lobe, which is typically associated with creativity and music, which is remarkable. But then also uh, when you're listening to music, there's lots of activity on the corpus callosum, which is the, the channel of nerves in the center of the brain uh, where the two hemispheres of the brain communicate to each other. And uh, what's interesting is... There's you know one level of, of neurological activity associated with listening, but there's like this whole separate tier associated with participating or creating in some way. And like I was thinking about the really uh, cheesy reputation that Christian music has as being low quality, being derivative. Uh, but when you look at what actually happens in a room full of Christians singing praise music, is it's incredibly participatory compared to other forms of musical performance. Everyone is singing along. Everyone is music, is, is moving, and everyone has some way in which they are contributing to the environment of the room. 
And that amplifies the cognitive effects of music, the beneficial effects, the increased capacity to process language, uh, the the more positive frame of mind, a a higher sense of self-esteem, higher sense of self-worth. I know that sounds contradictory to worshiping, worshiping God, uh, but that's just the science. And, and you have these, these, this room full of brains that actually start to create these neurological uh, patterns that are similar to each other in a brain scan. You see similar networks and shapes of uh, neurological activity and association forming in all these different brains together. And as that happens, as people start to contemplate increasingly broad ideas, so the most of our thought life is centered on self and centered on the needs of self. Um, but the way to transcendence, which transcendence is uh, associated with a certain type of seizure-like activity in your left temporal lobe and your left prefrontal cortex, uh, you can ladder up to those sorts of experiences by contemplating increasingly broad phenomena. So you move from yourself to your family, to your community, to your city, to your part of the world, to all of humanity, to greater than that is God. And worship actually steps you in these ever broader views of reality towards that transcendent state, which is amplified by the music and amplified by everyone doing it together. So there's like these tendencies we have. Um, Some of us are more naturally able to experience wonder, experience awe, uh, kind of have moments of worship on our own. But not everyone has that same sort of a propensity. But when you get everyone together, because of social identity, because of the power of music, because of the participatory aspects, everyone can start to walk together towards this experience that rises above self and rises above our everyday awareness. And that actually, <laughs> thinking about that and studying that, has made me dramatically less cynical about the ways that different denominations express worship, especially in music, because it acts as a neurological force amplifier and allows people with a greater inherent propensity towards transcendence to give others a leg up towards that same experience. That was a long intro, but it was really full of meat and glory. on the podcast today, Liturgist Podcast, as always, we have uh, Science Mike and me, Michael Gunger, and this next voice is, is going to be, uh, you're going to have to put on your discerning ears to pro- maybe tell the difference between our voices uh, at times, because it's my brother, and people say our voices sound the same a lot of times, but welcome David Gunger from Brilliance. Hey, Dave. Hey, guys. Thanks uh, for having me on. Mike, it's always good to hear you talk about meat and glory. <laughs> People really say you guys' voices sound the same? I think so. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, Gungers have a certain timbre in their mm. voices. Let me try that. Gungers have a certain timbre to their voices. Oh, that is brutal. Every time I hear myself talk back, though, I do, I'm like, oh, how do I sound like that? And then I think of like my dad's girly voice. And I'm like, oh, no. I really need to try to go with my lower tones. Um, 
David, tell us a little bit about those. Some of us, uh, if 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 the listeners have heard the liturgies, which hopefully you have, the liturgies that the liturgists put out, <laughs> we realize that we hardly ever talk about them on the podcast, which is kind of funny because um, we see it sort of as a, a big part of the center of our work. Actually, these liturgies we put out. Yeah, this is like uh, the side <laughs> the side serving is the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um. But anyway, David and the Brilliance, which is uh, David and, and his best friend, John Arndt, um, have been putting out church music, liturgical music for years now, and they've contributed to uh, at least a couple, how many of the, of the liturgies that we've done. And they've been there kind of from the beginning in these conversations. They've done uh, the initial like liturgist events with us. So David is a liturgist. Um, Tell us why you do what you do, Dave. What are you, why, are you, why do you make church music? There are plenty of other oh, stuff to do. I, I don't know. I ask myself that question every day. Me too. Why do I do this? <laughs> um, I, I live in New York City uh, with my wife, Kate, and our four children. And I work at a church called Trinity Grace Church. And I work at the parish in Tribeca. We are 11 parishes in New York City. And I am one of the pastors of the parish, which means I, uh, it's a smaller church, and there uh, is another pastor that kind of does the majority of the teaching, and I do the majority of the music. Um, but then uh, I put together a lot of the liturgies, write a lot of the liturgies for our Sunday gatherings, as well as um, uh, help pastor the church. So... I do that, and then uh, I also have a band called The Brilliance, which you mentioned, um, uh, that puts out music that um, is art for the church or, or based around the church narrative. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm honored to be a liturgist and honored to be a part of this podcast with you guys right now. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so we got lots of good questions about about worship. And if you're new to the Liturgist podcast, we take a subject and we discuss that subject through the lens of science, faith, and art. And today, worship, um, I think there's plenty to talk about. I was in this panel this last week at, at Calvin University. They had this faith and arts festival. And they, I was part of this panel on worship, which is actually part of the reason... Um, that this subject was inspired to do on the podcast because it started a conversation. The guy, the, the guy that was leading the kind of the moderator of the room um, asked a question for the four of us that were on the panel. And it was supposed to be, you know, we all kind of give a quick answer and keep moving through the questions. And an hour later, we're still on the first question debating one another. <laughs> um, and the, it was like this lively, crazy debate kind of that was starting to happen and we never really got to finish it. And I was like, I kind of want to talk about some of this stuff um, on the podcast. So it was interesting to me. And I think with a lot of our listeners uh, and some of the questions reflect this, there seems to be when you, you know, when you start asking questions, when you start, your faith kind of starts evolving from, you know, superstitious sky god um, appeasing the gods and sort of a world into, you know, and it starts taking on a more incarnational or subtle or nuanced, um, thing that, that how we treat one another is more important than appeasing some being in the sky, you know, like, 
as, and I think a lot of our listeners are there, a lot of the, the things we hear from people. Um, and so worship kind of takes, it, it kind of gets awkward for some people at a certain stage of journey where the, uh, you know, you start coming into a, a room and, and why do, if there's, the, if there is a God, why does this God want us to like, just get together and like talk about how awesome he is and how he's better than the, the other gods or, you know, like what are we doing here? Are we just stroking the ego of some big dude in the sky? Um, so he doesn't get mad at us. Are we? And so theologically, philosophically worship kind of takes on a, it kind of loses value for a lot of people. And I think you see that in a lot of progressive circles and stuff. Like you kind of, well, let's just, I guess, sing some old hymns, um, and there doesn't, a lot of times there's not much heart in it for a lot of people, I think. Um, you know, in more conservative circles, a lot of times there's a lot of heart in it and sometimes not a lot of, let's think about every one of these lyrics that we're th- singing, you know, <laughs> like most of the, uh, really popular worship songs are, if you look on the CCLI charts, which is sort of the reporting agency for publishing for churches that sing songs, um, Usually it's not the songs that are full of like really uh, progressive philosophical ideas or challenging theological ideas that are the ones that most churches pick up to sing. Um, It's the ones that are kind of like pop music, rock music formula, um, where, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, sort of a lot of times um, there's kind of a, a more like song like formula like that the 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 more popular recordings and stuff of those songs are kind of you know christian radio sounding um there's definitely like and and a lot of the lyrics are kind of i mean i don't want to i don't want to be cynical about it but are they kind of have a uh how to say this <laughs> they they rhyme, you know, they rhyme, they rhyme and they're very uh, sentimental or, and emotional, I guess, a lot of times. Um, but for me, I, I'm rarely like, whoa, that lyric, I'm going to have to go chew on that for a while. Um, so, so in this panel, we're all, we're talking about this and it was funny because there was the worship, one of the guys on the panel was a worship leader at uh, a fairly progressive church in town in Grand Rapids. And, uh, and by the middle of the conversation, he goes, he's like, I can't believe I am the like most conservative guy in the room for the, for the first time ever. Uh, cause the other two, and I was the second most conservative guy. Uh, the other, the other two guys Whoa. were like, yeah. Um, and I think they did this kind of, they did this on purpose. They knew it would be quite a conversation and it was. Um, but one of the guys is a, a radical theology guy, which basically, um, I don't want to butcher the, the radical theology philosophy, but essentially it's that, the mess, that Christianity uh, is a great means to an end of deconstructing your faith or deconstructing the metaphysic of a, of a big other. Um, yeah, so the guy, the radical theology guy, had come to chapel that morning, and they, uh, Calvin had asked me to lead some songs for their chapel, and kind of came in, and I was singing, 
uh, this is our father's world. And he was just immediately just disgusted by the whole thing. Why are we all in here having to sing to this big other sky God rather than taking care of each other? And the conversation kind of turned, why can't we just sing? Uh, I mean, what's different about that than just singing a Katy Perry song together? And why, why don't we just sing a Katy Perry song together? I think he would prefer it. Um, to just sing singer-songwriter songs that talk about us. And uh, so what do you guys think? Dave, what do, what do you think? What is the value of why you would sing a song to God? And how would you respond to that kind of sentiment? Like, are you just appeasing a mythological construct in your head? Or, or is there something... M- more beautiful, more important that's happening when we all get together and sing a worship song to God. I think part of what you were describing a little bit earlier before you posed this question about church music in general um, and the song structure and the form usually lines up with um, everything about that song should be positive and encouraging or informative. Um instead of inspiring and authentic. And um, it feels like sometimes, and I know for something like this, like especially if you're just singing about ideas um, and they're just ideas to you, then it can really feel unauthentic. It can feel very uninspired. Um, For me, I feel like... um, within the Christian narrative, you know, in a larger scale, obviously that guy's whole theology is pointing towards a deconstruction um, of something that he finds to be a problem. And for me, when I think about um, like Jesus and the love of God, it's something um, that I can build upon on how I view the other. And so... I don't naturally view the other oftentimes the way that Jesus teaches to view the other or teaches to love others. And they're counter um, cultural oftentimes or they're counter intuitive to what I would normally want to do if someone um, wronged me. And so to have, to have something like hymns or have something like uh, songs that, I sing about the idea of God. Um, first, it it is putting me at a moment where it comes to friction, and I think that friction is a good thing. And second, it's like, especially within a group setting, it's it's putting me at a place with that group um, where all of those ideas about God are coming to a head. And so if I'm singing about God's forgiveness and about how we are to forgive, obviously I'm gonna look at the person next to me and it's gonna put me in a challenging spot of like, how do I view them? And then by no means am I just trying to say, oh, all worship songs do this, like all worship songs, you know. Obviously if we're only singing songs about the wrath of God um, and judgment and, um, you know, how we view holiness and how we view, if, if that's all we sing about, um, then I'm probably going to view people in a certain way. It's going to help shape the way that I view the world. But I, I don't, um, 
I don't think it's a, a bad thing to be able to have counter narratives that we sing about and that were given to us because our faith isn't one that we make up. It's one that we receive. So like it or not, we can try to change it, but it's still you're receiving whatever you got. And so even being able to take something like this is my father's world, like if we were going to take those lyrics, which I love this is my father's world, so I'm probably biased in this. Um, but like, why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. Like there's something about the Lord is king that obviously is going to say so many things about like even like now, like what do we think of as king? We don't live in a society where we have kings or we have queens or, we, or even, you know, whatever that is. So it's automatically a counter narrative to where we are right now. Or some of our listeners might in, in Britain. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yes. Hello to you who still have the royalty. Um, I, I just don't, there's, for me, it's like, um, there is a difference between the Greek self-expression, just this is how I feel today, and just saying, well, that's authentic because it's how I feel today. I feel like, yeah, but there also can be authenticity in having a counter narrative and then being like, I don't feel like this today. However, um, I realize that when I sing and when I'm doing this, the point is not for me to to have some emotional feeling of this is how I feel. And now because I feel like this, it's like, oh, I just really feel great. I'm not, I don't sing songs in church to get a feeling. I don't sing songs in church to just go, oh, I agree. I agree. I agree. There's something about, and even like now, I don't like framing the question with, and I could see if he was getting frustrated of like, even when we say worship, worship is so much, so much bigger than just music or the songs we sing. However, when we put the songs we sing into an expression of worship and into an expression of trying to encounter the divine, anytime you encounter the divine, it's going to mess with you on some level. And I, and, and because it's messing with you on some level, I'm okay with it, uh, you know, not always having to, uh, to line up of just like, well, this is inauthentic because this is just an idea. It's like, yeah, what if it is just an idea? What is this idea saying? My sister has a severely disabled child. Um, she's blind and she's has seizures constantly all day long. And miraculously, um, she has 14 now, but her baptism was the most moving experience of worship I've ever had. She um, is Greek Orthodox, and we didn't know if Ellie would live through the year. Um, and so when we can, went to her baptism, we knew that it was her event, the big event of her life, where she would have a party, where she would have people coming to attend and celebrating with her, celebrating her life. And it was extremely moving because the sacraments were so powerful in that moment. Uh, it wasn't about what Ellie could understand because we knew she would never understand anyway. And it wasn't about what anybody there could do for her because we didn't know what that could be. It was all about God's grace, uh, his, his power and his grace. Worship is a posture. So when I was coming to record this podcast, I drove home from my office 
down a beautiful canopy road on a gorgeous spring day on a very fast motorcycle. And as I'm driving down the road on this motorcycle with this just perfect temperature, air, clear skies that are only visible through this thick tree canopy that entirely cover the road, I had an awareness that I did not make this day and I did not make this weather and I did not create the circumstances that were allowing me to experience such a wonderful moment. But I could receive those things in a posture of humility and gratitude. So what is that gratitude toward? That gratitude is toward God, the source of all things, the ground of all being. So as I'm just like cruising down the road, I had a moment where my awareness expanded beyond the the mere amazing visceral thrill of riding a motorcycle towards the fact that this moment is a gift that came from somewhere. And when I acknowledge that gift in gratitude, that becomes a moment of worship. Now, that was personal worship. It was just me. But we have those moments. We have those experiences where we sing these songs in the presence of other people, or we hear these stories, or we tell our own, or we read from the scriptures, and all those things give us a posture where we acknowledge that we humans, amazing and clever and powerful as we are, are not the ground of being and are not the source of all and orient our posture to an openness of the gift that is experienced. And to me, anything that encompasses that posture and that awareness is worship. You don't even have to know exactly who or what God is, you don't even have to have a clue who or what God is to assume that posture of awareness and gratitude. The evening of a day when someone very close to me hurt me very deeply. I was alone, brushing my teeth under the stars, just looking up at the stars and kind of, you know, in awe of the universe and, uh, thinking about my brother who hurt me and um, I just started having compassion on him, um, just realizing that really he just wanted love as much as I did. Um, And then that led me to, you know, thinking about God and and actually having the same kind of compassion on him, on God. Just like thinking of him as just like being heartbroken over our relationship as well and wanting wanting my love just like I wanted his and so I began to open up I was like look God I don't have anything for you he met me there and and that really is kind of the heart of my worship experience every time I worship it's just like look God this is who I am and what I have for you and you're invited into my life and it's powerful Okay, so this is specifically uh, my own uh, my own laments, and this is on the Christian worship leader rock star. So we both, and I have followed in your footsteps, have both tried to make art while being worship leaders and making art for the church, and yet at the same time have felt at some point the tension probably of the Christian worship leader rock star. 
and the imaging of that and how we try to say that uh, in certain contexts, like we're not building a rock concert, we're not doing this, and then you look at everything of the medium that is the message as uh, a worship leader and you're on the giant screen and you look really cool and you're playing, you know, large crowd and everything that that means on the big stage. And for both of us, for the churches that we attend, we have tried to get away from that as much as possible, even so much to the point where oftentimes we're getting rid of stages or we're trying to, at a liturgist concert, be behind a screen so it's not so much us in the front and us as the leader and us as the the front and center um, while leading congregational music. So I guess one of the ways that we could start with is we're obviously going to have a tension when you talk about worship leaders and image and who we let on stage and who we let participate. Can you talk maybe a little bit about the tension of that and maybe what about some of your, your own thoughts and musings on it? It is a funny thing. I was just with some friends who I won't name because their names are known um, pretty popularly out there, but there kind of came to this point in the conversation where one of the parties involved kind of called out most of the popular worship culture today is not, you know, people talk, keep talking about like this move of God that's happening over here or there where all these people are assembled. And this uh, particular person said, I went to one of these places where God uh, was supposedly moving. And this is <laughs> with one of these people, by the way, like right there and said, um, and to me, it kind of looked more like there was a bunch of sexy Calvin Klein models on the stage. And, uh, and of course, a lot of people were there pretty happy about that. He goes, if I got on the stage, the move of God would definitely move somewhere else. Uh, this particular guy was a little chubby. <laughs> and <laughs> A little meat and glory. Little meat and glory, um, meet without the glory for the move of God. But it's it's uh, quite an interesting, yeah. Like the fact that all of our our worship leaders, the most popular ones, they're not they're not often ugly. They're not often uh, overweight. Um, they're nice to look at. They've. Got- I find this especially with women. And I don't mean that misogynistically. I feel bad where it's like oftentimes in the yeah, evangelical true, circles, actually. you can be a guy and you can uh, maybe be a little overweight or you can be like me, bald or like you, trying to escape balding. <laughs> and it's not like gungers are really good looking guys, but what we try to do as men is when we're not really good looking, we try to move from trying to still be really good looking to just trying to look interesting. You know, so it's like, oh, we can be cool. So we wear glasses or we do this and we look like kind of cool and hip. And we're not really good looking, but we're hip. <laughs> and with women, with women, that's really hard because, you know, especially in evangelical culture, we still celebrate. Yeah, if, um, you're, not, if you're not a great looking guy, you just grow a beard and put on some, you know. Yeah, I mean, right now, something. right now I'm wearing like an Indiana Jones, like freaking crazy hat. I'm wearing some like really cool like baggy baggy sweatpants and this like baggy sweatshirt. And I'm sure I'm the fattest I've ever been in my life right now with like this like ragged beard and baldness, you know? 
and yet I can get away with it. And there's probably some worship leader girl out there right now that just feels like total crap because she feels like she has to be some image. And that's, that's what drives me crazy about like evangelical worship pop star, where it's like, we say we're about the community, we say we're about this thing. And then so blatantly, our, our whole medium is an image. And that to me is something that I lament and something that drives me crazy. And it drives me crazy even more when through our art, like, so Michael, I'll speak to like, I played bass for Gunger for a while. Now I have my own band with the Brilliance. It's hard because a lot of times I'll open up for like worship bands that are bigger than us. And for Brilliance in particular, we're trying to make art. Like we're a band that's making art based around the church and it's music for the church, but it's not like congregational worship songs all the time. It's art. And so I want anyone to be able to listen and experience that art. And it's a show and I'm cool with it being a show. But then I'll get worship bands that we'll play with or whatever, and they're like, well, what we're doing isn't a show. It's just worship. It's just worship. And yet the whole thing is designed as a show. And it's like, And then they sign autographs afterwards. Yes, and then you're signing autographs after. Look, I'm cool with you doing art, with Christian art, and be cool with that and make beautiful music. But why do we have to be so unauthentic and then try to call that worship and then like diss on bands that do like spiritual music? And be like, oh, that's a show. Yeah, there's like a negative connotation to show, I think, for a lot of people in worship world. And I used to say the same thing, like, we're not trying to put on a show. And I say the same thing, like, even when we were at Bloom, we started Bloom in Denver and our our church there. And we definitely were not trying to put on a show. That's why we got in a circle and, you know, I played acoustic guitar on the floor standing next to the other congregants. Um, But I don't think there's anything wrong with a show. I think it's just when you you do equate a show with in a purely church context. Uh, I I am personally am am too green or whatever to 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 want to have just one person get up and and tell me what he thinks about the Bible, or listen to one person and her sing all of her music that she's interested in. Um, th- that's I I want a more communal experience than that personally, but that doesn't mean that a sh- show is any less holy. But then yeah, when you when you mix up the categories so much to you know a Christian concert for instance that's a worship night, but you're charging tickets for it, and people are there to see you. That's where I can feel like somewhat, and this is, and I don't mean to like be harsh against this because I, I find myself in the reality of it. But this is where it's like oftentimes I find, especially if you're going to use like an evangelical nature, is like there are so many worship bands and worship artists or Christian artists that also lead worship that like I would love to take um, someone that isn't like at all associated with faith or Christianity and would love to take them to a Gunger concert or a John Mark McMillan concert or whatever it is and experience beauty and be like, this is awesome music. And it's about hope and it's about this. And oh, that's cool. And it opens the question to like, what are they about? And what is this about? And so like on one end, it's like very evangelical in nature. And yet it's so funny to me because then as like Christian artists, we feel like we're not allowed to have a show because we feel like everything is just, this is just worship. And if it's just worship and this is this thing, we make music the most sacred part. And that's to me the disconnect 
Because for me, the sacred part is like the community, the liturgy, the actual sacraments. And that to me is when there's like this big disconnect. And for my own like job, my own vocation is like I look at what I do um, on Sunday mornings as a pastor. And there's a, the, I'm going to approach that as a pastor. And yet with my art, with the brilliance, I look at it more like, and I know this is like stupid to say about yourself, but I try to look at it more like prophetically and more like I'm speaking to other things. And I'm just, I'm speaking this thing that then like I can use art as a vehicle of like, of, of using art to show beauty in certain ways. Normally, I worship best in the corporate setting. But I was singing my favorite song to God, and I started laughing and crying. I just felt this overwhelming feeling of peace and love, and I started laughing and crying because I knew that was God talking to me. That's powerful. I don't know if it's just our culture. I'm sure other cultures through time and history have experienced similar tensions with sacred and secular, but there seems to be such a strange divide within a certain religious world that, that I have uh, brushed shoulders with quite often, um, where there is this weird divide. Even you say worship that automatically paints a picture for so many people about a, a music that's sung to God within a church setting or whatever. How is a Rage Against the Machine song not worship? <laughs> That's it, like... Oh, man. I've had serious moments. I've had serious killing in the name of love moments that I am like, this is like... I don't get the Old Testament often through like worship songs I sing at church, but I get the freaking Old Testament when I listen to Rage Against the Machine. I'm like, oh my gosh, this like tension of war and this tension of oppression and this tension of like everything that is like how we take nationalistic thoughts and these things. And it's like true art that freaking like sings to the soul because it speaks of what it, what it means to be human. And that's what good art, you know, like I, John says this, I'm totally ripping this from John. But John, the other guy in the brilliance and plays keys with Michael all the time, um, he'll talk about like Mona Lisa and be like, what is the thing that makes Mona Lisa a piece of art? And the thing that makes it a piece of art, like that's such, so famous, is not that it's just like so great, but it's so mysterious where it's like there's so much room for interpretation where in the Mona Lisa, is she smiling? Is she mad? Is she, is it a smirk? Is she trying to be like sexy? Like, what is that? And we all have this interpretation. It wasn't the best painting of a woman ever in that time period. It just is like, there's something about the mystery of it and it leaves room for questions. And that for me is like the beauty so many times of music that wrestles with tension and with doubt or calls out certain things and lives in that tension is that we all can have different interpretations of it. And that's the beauty of the art of it. And in the church world, so many times we never leave room for mystery or for tension. Yeah, I the tension that I struggle with is because I want to write personally. I've always wanted to write honestly and musically 
you know, be musically honest, be lyrically honest. And to do that, I have to talk about God if I'm ever like, because I think about God so much. I always have. It's part of, you know, it, when I have a couple of drinks, I'm immediately going philosophical on you. I'm, me- I'm immediately talking theology. Um, it's what I, when you get rid of my inhibitions, but that's why I write the songs that I write, not because I'm trying to reach a Christian market, not because I'm trying to create Christian propaganda to turn other people into Christians. It's because that's what I think about. That's what I wrestle about these ideas of God and meaning and spirituality. And is any of this true? And if it is, what does that mean? And if it's not, why is it, why can't I stop thinking about it? And you know, like, um, so to not be able to make art about that and even directly to it, to God, that's how I started writing songs was in church to God. And as I've evolved as an artist, um, that's just part of me. It's like my heritage is my artistic heritage is church music. So how do I, can I make art within that context? That's not propaganda. That's not, and that's it. The thing is that space doesn't exist on a mainstream scale. There are certainly artists that are trying to do it. Um, but there's not a system for that. There's not a, you know, a label that specializes in that. And there's millions of people that know about this. There's not a, a Christian radio equivalent of Becky for this thing. There's, it hasn't been. That's the tension that I live in of feeling like, feeling like because there's not a market for it. <laughs> and you're like, you're talking about not a market for it. I mean, like people literally a lot of times don't know what to do with it. Cause they're like, well, it's not like church Sunday music. Like it's not like Sunday morning music at church and it's not like really, uh, you know, but it's sort of, yeah, at my church, I do everything at my church, but I live in a community where like, I'm allowed to do that. Like I'm allowed to sing, make us one and sing, uh, does your heart break and sing mercy and wrestle. But so many people like, especially on like a mainstream Christian thing, it's like, because that market doesn't exist and it kind of exists, you always feel like either I'm going to go with like one market that's going to totally discredit the Christian market and they're really not going to get this, or I'm going to go with the really Christianese market, which is not going to get at all where I'm coming from, and they just don't know how to handle you. So they're like, I can't use your songs on radio, which is how I make money, because we don't make it in selling records anymore, so we can't use you in radio, and we don't really want to push your songs in the church because they're not really easy to do. So what are we going to do with you? I don't know. It's cool that you're making your music, Michael. (laughs) Exactly. So we make podcasts and try to convince uh, people that that it's uh, possible to to sing to God and and it not be some weird sort of propaganda attempt, <laughs> or uh, and try to convince others that that art might be worth trying to make within a church context. Um, but I don't know. I just I, I do think that it's worth worth the struggle because when I experience it, I do experience it not only from trying to make it. And when I actually do come up with a lyric that like speaks something um, that rings true for me and that there's something, Oh man, it's so nice when I finally like, Oh, I said what I was trying to say. I found the words that I've been trying to say. Um, but also if that can help other people, cause I experienced that through other people's work, of course, far more often in non-liturgical music, far more often in just mainstream music. Um, I listen to very little what would be labeled or marketed as Christian music. But sometimes the, um, even within Christian, you know, 
there are people that have been marketed within the Christian uh, music industry that they'll they'll do something that I that has been really profound for me. And when you just when that when that happens, there are some songs and some moments that I've experienced from other artists that I'm like I get that just does so much for me. I can't, if I have any possibility of doing that for somebody else too, um, even if it's just a few people, it's, it's what's funny it. though, is some of the most musically inspired moments that I have in my life today, even is that I, I experience those musical moments and I don't like listen to them on a record, but I experience them live. So I'll give you like three examples. One would be, I love, I live in New York. I love going to Village Vanguard. I go about once every two months and I go catch a show. I don't listen to jazz music a lot, like at, like while I'm walking or doing something, you know. I only listen to jazz music in certain circumstances. If I'm at home and I put on like a record player or if I'm like out at a jazz club and there's something about it that's like so inspiring, so beautiful. It's in that moment. And I'm not trying to make it my music all the time. And there's something similar about like classical music for me where like the most inspired I've ever been by far is listening to orchestras where I'm, or a string quartet where like the Taka string quartet at Carnegie Hall blew my mind away. And like, I'm not listening to Takas all the time. And then I think about like Sunday mornings and I think about hymns and I think about like, it's funny this week it like somehow got me, I'm like getting ready for Easter and we're singing garden this week. And I like never like listen to stuff that we record, you know, or somewhat record. So like, I don't go back and listen to brilliance tracks all the time or old Gunger tunes, but somehow I found like, I'm getting ready for this and I found higher. You remember your song and be lifted higher. There is no one, like, no one like you. And bro, I sang that song and like wept for like an hour this last week. And I'm like, how did this song escape me? And I'm putting it in our Good Friday service. And like that song to me is so powerful and makes me wrestle with God's judgments, even his judgments are righteous and true. And it hits me so freaking hard. And yet it's music that I'm not like sitting here listening to you sing all the time. Like... I'm not sitting here listening to those songs all the time. And yet, that's kind of the beauty of it. Where it's like, is that where church music really is so artistic and so beautiful that it doesn't have to be music that I listen to all the time. But somehow when I go to church and I sing this and I, and I experience this, it's just like that jazz club or it's just like that moment at, at, at Carnegie Hall for me where it literally is sacred and it's musical and it literally inspires my worldview and shapes who I am. This has been part one of our conversation about worship. Part two is coming in two weeks. So tune back in to check that out. And uh, if you'd like to talk about what you've heard in this episode, join us at theliturgist.com slash podcast and leave a comment. You can also go to facebook.com slash theliturgist or connect to us on Twitter at theliturgist. I'm Science Mike. I'm Michael Gunger. I'm David Gunger. Thanks so much, everybody.